0: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. This is Megan Reardon Jarvis, your host, and today I'm here with Dr. Joshua Black, and I am really excited for this conversation. His team reached out to me because he has a niche in the world of grief and loss that according to my Google research, you are sort of the guy to talk to about grief dreams. And I really just want to jump right into this because I have had grief dreams. I've had conversations with people about grief dreams, and I want to know all the things that you think and know about those. But beforehand, let me just read a little bit of your bio for folks so that they can know a little bit more about you. Dr. Joshua Black has a research interest in the area of grief dreams with a special focus on dreams of the deceased. He's one of the leading researchers in the field which he says he still finds shocking. The issue is that no one's really focused their research career on the topic and because of that it has been unexplored. He did his master's of arts program in psychology at Trent U- University and his thesis examined themes and the personal meaning on dreams of the deceased. Welcome, Dr. Black. Thank you so much for being here. I understand also that you have like a personal interest. It's not just you decided you rolled a dice and said, hey, grief dream sounds fantastic. I know that you had your own experience with personal loss and grief. So just give us a sense of how you got into this field, how long you've been doing it, you know, just get us introduced.
1: Yeah, I actually want to be an elementary school teacher. That was my goal. And I was in university for that. And so I had no desire to be a researcher, no desire to even understand what grief was. (laughs) And so it was in my fourth year. It took five years to finish my undergrad, but it was in that fourth year that my dad died. And it was a complete shock to me. It was the first time I had any awareness of what that type of loss felt like, a significant loss felt like. And it completely broke me. It's very hard to explain how it broke me, but At that time, I was a good male in our society, and I didn't cry at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a lot of unresolved anger issues, (laughs) probably because of that. And so when I got the phone call that my dad died, I just started crying. And for me, it was so scary because I wasn't used to it. And so I was in this weird position where I needed to cry, but it scared me so much Mm -hmm. that I didn't know what to do with that kind of energy, that kind of emotion, and I tried to suppress it, but I just couldn't. And so you're left in this very scary position. And it was great I had a, a partner at the time that was there to you know support me and normalize those feelings and emotions, but it was very difficult for me to, to say the least. And the other big thing too was, you know, my dad was supposed to pick me up. It was around my birthday, two days before my birthday, and then I got notified on my birthday that he died. So, anyways, he was supposed to pick me up, and that shock of him supposed to be there but not and thinking it was just you know he slept in or whatever and to know that he was dead like it really it definitely shook me to realize that you know death is very real to all of us and all everyone i I know yeah so after the after the, the funeral and everything that happened what was interesting in my grief was I stopped crying. I went back. And I was like, yes, Montland, <laughs> it's, gone. Get... Woo, it's gone. Yeah, no it's <laughs> gone. No more grief. But the other crazy thing was there's also no more joy. <laughs> and so uh, one would say I would probably be depressed. And the best way I would explain it was that the color came out of my world. Once mm. I went back to school and went back to work. And I just never had any more tears. And it was just a weird thing where I just thought this is the way life is now. I never thought that it wasn't supposed to be like this or that I could change that. It was like, oh, this is just how it is. And then I was just pursuing life as that. And I didn't know I should have got help or could have got help. And people stopped that. Like no one really asked about my grief anyway. So, because I think I looked fine. I was doing everything I needed to do. And so, you know, I probably would have, I don't know where I'd be actually without the dream I had after. But it was three months after the death, I had this dream that completely changed me. And I would say it saved my life because it brought life back into my world and it shifted my focus on you know, what was important in life, how to feel joy again, and to be able to basically live a little bit better in this world. And that allowed me to then work on my grief in a new way. And so I'll tell you the dream. So yeah. I was in my bed, I was sleeping. So I was in my room. And I could see my father at the other end of the the room and he was looking through some of my stuff and at that time my room was very cluttered and I got that from him I won't lie he was kind of a hoarder in many ways (laughs) and so at that time I had a lot of stuff you know I've changed a lot since then which is great it's the beautiful thing about adulting and (laughs) and finding your own way in life that imagery was really cool for me because he was very interested in the little knickknacks and stuff I had in my room Mm -hmm. right so, so that was his personality he was the one that would go to the side of the road on junk day and look through people's garbage to see if there's anything interesting there, right? Anyway, so he was looking through that and then uh, he turned around he had a smile on his face and he was so light. The best way to put it, he had this like lightness to him. And in waking life, he had a lot of issues with his emotions, trauma, and he he coped by drinking. So I always saw him very heavy in life. And so for me, it wasn't even a memory. It was like something different. There was this very peaceful quality to him. And then, so I walked up to him and said, I'm going to miss, I said, I was going to miss you and acknowledging the loss. And I told him that I loved him. And then we hugged and I woke up. Uh. And for me, it meant the world in many ways. And when I woke up, I felt different. Like I didn't interpret the dream and then that helped me. I just was changed from that dream and I just sat at the end of my bed just thinking, what was that? And how am I feeling alive right now? Like the color was back. I could mm-hmm. feel it. Like everything changed in the way I was perceiving the world. And I just sat at the end of the bed just thinking, well, how is this even possible? And then the question came, why did it take so damn long? <laughs>
0: yeah. You said three months, right? Is is that, yeah. have you in your research discovered that three months is a thing? I'm just curious. Has Is the no. timing... And timing, yeah.
1: timing's interesting. Like anytime people bring up a dream, the timing is always very interesting, but no, some people have dreams right away. Some people, it takes a year or so to have a dream, but it's usually, you know, people will have, I would say majority of the first dream within the first three months. Is, is the yeah. same bet.
0: So your whole, dep- you're that depressive state lifted because you had this resolution yeah. of being able to say the goodbye that you didn't essentially i think
1: there's a lot in there right so there's right. like a bye i never got to say then there's the fact that i said i loved him which yeah. if someone asked me what are your blocks i would never have said that i didn't tell him i loved him because at that point we never told each other we loved each other even though it was kind right. of implied but we were like good males right and i was following his lead i'll i'll, I'll, I'll shift the blame to him <laughs> all, his <fault. laughs> all his fault uh yeah. so anyways but when I look back at that dream, I realized how important that was for me. And I actually learned a lot from that and being, being able to express the words of, I love you to people, friends and doing nice things for others and how difficult that was for me, like for me to do in the dream. So naturally I didn't have any kind of resistance, but in waking life, I try to say it to my mom or my brother and there's this resistance there and it just happened. So I had to work on that. So it became easier for me because it was so unnatural to say that stuff. But that dream really helped me to showcase the importance of saying that which was really nice and then there's a third part of the dream where there was this love and peace that was a part of it that you don't really get in dreams like there's usually a lot of anxiety or it's just like something going on but that it's almost as a pure love and peace that i haven't really felt before I, i believe there's something to that space or that type of emotional space that you're a part of in the dream that I think does a lot. Because when you look across cultures, not everyone will have those I love you dreams or or having to say I love you or to even say goodbyes. But there's this love in the dream. The love tends to be the thing that people Mm -hmm. say is different and the thing that they remember most. So I believe that With everything, spiritual or not, people are having these love dreams. So I believe it's the love within the dreams. That's probably one of the most important factors for the the interchange. And then there's the other stuff that goes along with it.
0: Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, I have a million, a million thoughts in my head, but let me ask you a couple more things about your research in general. So you've been studying this now for years. And what does the study involve? Is it interviewing people with questionnaires? Is it Like, what are you, and do you, again, I've sort of looked at your website and I know a bit about, but tell our listeners, you know, is there a hypothesis that you're running after? Are you looking for different clusters of dreams? I'm leading the witness here. Tell (laughs) us a little bit about, you know, what you have, what you ask about, what you're, the information you're collecting and what you're discovering.
1: Yeah. So all the above, after I had that dream, so I knew dreams are very important to me. And so that was the key to, I think, a lot of stuff, but I never told anyone. Like, this is the crazy part, one of the most important moments of my life, and I was afraid, I guess you could say, to tell anyone about the experience. I felt it felt very sacred. And so I just carried on, and then I was gonna be an elementary school teacher. I still had no concept of wanting to be a researcher. It just, I had this experience, it changed me how great that is, right? I never asked about other people's dreams. It just it didn't really cross my mind the importance of it to, to others. It was important to me, but then I just carried on. And so when I was going to be that elementary school teacher, I got into the interview and then sometimes it didn't feel right. And it was the weirdest thing because that was my plan A and I didn't have a plan B. And so I wasn't sure why that was, maybe because my dad really wanted me to become an elementary school teacher. I know that he put a lot of pressure on me to do that. And so maybe with him being dead, there wasn't as much pressure, but, or maybe there's just another, something else that was just calling me out there for a different path to be, to be forged. And so anyways, I turned it down and I said, I can't, like, it's wow. not, it's not right, which was <laughs> like, talk right. about dark days. You know, it's one thing when someone dies. It's another thing when your dreams and goals and aspirations also fall <laughs> and you yeah. have no,
0: that's a, you that's have no a lot of loss all at once.
1: Oh my God. I had no meaning. My meaning was to become, a school teacher. And then when you say, no, that's not it. Well, then there's no meaning. There was no plan B. And so I went through a little dark time there. And because I was trying to find meaning, the jobs I was a part of didn't actually resonate at all with me. And so I'm like, how can I get more meaning in my life? And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna volunteer with the bereaved and at a hospice. And mm-hmm. that's what I did. And that's when I actually saw the importance of these dreams and wanted to do something more because they kept asking all these questions that, first of all, I never asked them about the dreams, they just kept bringing it up. Yeah. And then the questions they had were very different than, than the dream I had and the questions I, I had, if I had any. And so they were wondering why they didn't have dreams. And then they would supplement that with, is it because the like if they're spiritual, the deceased is mad at me. Cause I had to sell the house or I couldn't yeah. give him the funeral that he wanted. Did he even make it to heaven? Did he even cross over? Is he stuck somewhere or the other ones is why doesn't he love me as he loves my kids or you know his, his mm-hmm. mom who all had dreams, like what's wrong with me. And so that was a huge thing and and so they also are having these negative dreams that i had no idea about even how dreams relate to waking life because there just wasn't really anything uh, when it comes to uh, knowledge in our community or knowledge even in schools that it really talks about you know dreams in any real way and so i didn't know so i just looked at the research to see what i could sort of provide them and there wasn't anything there and that's when i had this moment where i said okay i'm looking for meaning <laughs> and then there's something in front of me that you know people want to know more about but yet there's nothing there for them and then i said could i do this work and for me people need to understand like i wasn't trying to be a researcher so it was the scariest thing for me to go into a field to learn research methodology to learn statistics i didn't want to learn those in school i did good in them but i completely okay. forgot that once that exam was done i deleted everything that i learned yeah and so for me it was so nerve-wracking and it was going to be such a learning curve i knew it was going to be tough and you know, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna give it a try at least and see what happens. And here I have him with a PhD and I wanted to drop out many times to tell you the truth. But I got through, which is a very beautiful quality of not only, you know, persevering some of the struggles, but when people can support you in your struggles and provide you the importance of what you're doing. And I think, you know, a lot of researchers and colleagues, no one ever said anything about the importance of the research more or less important to the phd or whatever but it was the research that so many bereaved individuals were continually to support me to say how important it was and that was probably the biggest thing that allowed me to persevere a lot of the struggles just give that one last effort in that one last effort always sort of pay dividends to get to the next course or to do what i needed to do and so that's when i really sort of First saw the importance, but it was when I was in my master's and PhD that's when I realized the vastness of the topic that I didn't even know going in, and no one really knows. And right? that's why I'm really trying to raise awareness. And so, yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can do the research and interviews, like or questionnaires, a big one. Yeah. That's what I normally use uh, for that, just because the quantitative research is more valued in our society. And when you're yeah. trying to raise awareness on a topic, you want to do it in a way that researchers around the world and people around the world will then look at it and take it as, you know, valid. valid. And so the podcast is more like that qualitative research Absolutely. that I've always wanted to do, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. Because <laughs> you actually get to hear the stories and how it relates to waking life. A lot of the, the questionnaires I do have, it, they do tell their dream, which is nice. So it's there's a qualitative aspect in that. And I do try to showcase that within different research articles but more or less it is about the stats and the numbers. Yeah, exactly. So some of the questions is like, how frequent are these dreams? You know, why are people having negative dreams? Why do people aren't, why aren't people having dreams and other people are, and you know, what are the functions of these dreams? So all that sort of stuff is what I looked at. Do dreams change over time? Like there's a lot of questions you can ask and yeah, and I've done a lot. And also how does that, how do dreams relate to different other types of life? So, you know, spells of a or it's pet loss, or it's even miscarriage. Are there differences in those? And mm. so let talk about all of that.
0: From your research, what's been the most interesting thing for you to discover? I mean, it just sounds like a whole big, broad exploration. I think I read somewhere that, that people who generally dream are more likely to have grief dreams. And I thought yeah. that was, you know, that, that you, that's on your website, I think. And I thought that probably makes sense. But also, how interesting is that? right? Like that, that if you're someone who processes emotion through dream, that maybe that's something, you know, that's a, that's a conduit where grief is going to be able to process, but is there anything in there that you're like, wow, I just never, never would have expected this, or I can't wait to learn more about this. There's
1: no, there's not one thing. Like the whole thing is just like phenomenal. And, you know, that's like, I could talk, like I, I run on an online or I have an online training course, it's like nine and a half hours. There's so much <laughs> that I'm just like super excited about because no one knows the research and so for me, everything of this stuff is just phenomenal. But I would start, I guess, basically in the beginning, one of the first nuggets that really caught my eye, that made me think that this topic was a little bit different than just dreaming in general and the research there. And so the first was, I didn't think it was going to be that common because there wasn't any research in it. So that was the first shock for me, realizing how common this stuff is. Yeah. For people, you could think like no one in theontology talks about the or talks about the dreams that the people have. It's not any kind of bereavement training program that I've seen. Even sleep's not, which is really weird because they're really tied together. But people tend to avoid even talking about sleep with the bereaved. But at the end of the day, so some of the, the numbers are so after spells of loss, it was eighty six percent within the first year or two had at least one dream of the deceased. Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's so many people, so <laughs> and many people. it's so many people. And I and I want to sort of point out that when I did the research, I didn't talk about dreams in the intro. It was about it was a grief study. And Uh, so these are actually realer numbers than someone who would just say, oh, like, this is a dream study and you'll get dreamers to actually come in. So that's a huge number. And I want to say that 10% of the population just doesn't remember dreaming. So there's a lot of people that are going to be having these dreams. And yet, what do we know about them and how do they impact the journey through grief? Then pet loss, it was 78% within the first six months. And then even after a miscarriage, it was 57%. And that was wild to me too, because I had no idea what I was like stepping into because first of all, there hasn't been any research in the area. So I don't know what those dreams would look like, if they would even dream of them, if it's just going to be them pregnant with the child, like what would that actually be? Yeah. And what was interesting is a lot of them, partners and the birth mothers, they're having these dreams of the actual child that they've never met. So Mm -hmm. it's not a physical memory. It's something else. And they're dreaming of them at different ages, which is, I think, fascinating in itself too. And so for me, there's just so much. And then when you look at, okay, people having these dreams, okay, so they are common, wow. Next is, are they going to be negative? So mm-hmm. looking at dream research in general, people need to know what what they found so far. And that basically, on average, people remember more negative dreams than positive dreams. Sure. Right? And that just goes... Basically, because dreams reflect our waking life in many ways. So if you're anxious or worried, you're going to have more negative dreams. If you're happy or more joyful, you're going to have more positive dreams. So Richard has sort of shown that. And then after trauma, people have even more consistently negative dreams. Yeah. So you think if someone's grieving, you're probably somewhere in between. So you should be having a lot of negative dreams if you're going to be dreaming. And so if the deceased is in there, you should have more negative dreams because then you know it ties to their grief. But what's crazy is that uh, it's actually the opposite is true. Yeah. You're more likely to have a positive dream of the deceased, and not by just like minimal numbers, but a lot. And like so, just out of that spells a loss group, 92% said they had a, at least one positive dream. And when I say positive, I mean the content of the dream. I sort of like spelled that out on what those dreams would would be like. And then it was about 40% had a negative dream. But what's interesting is those 40% also had a positive dream. And so it was very rare to just have negative dreams of the deceased, which is so strange to me, Um, but it was very common to just have positive dreams of the deceased. And then the research was replicated with pet loss. And once again, over 90% of the sample of those who dreamt had a positive dream of the deceased, and around 25% had a negative dream. And so it really turns the dreaming research on its head because the mind's doing something differently. So there's something differently going on here when the deceased is in the imagery. And I would expect that other dreams people are having during their bereavement process is going to be negative. So when the deceased isn't a part of the imagery, they're probably having a lot of negative dreams. But when the deceased is in the imagery, something changes. And I think that is fascinating to me because there's a lot we don't know. And there's something going on here that you know, would probably uh, allow us to understand, I think, grief a little bit more yeah. uh, also.
0: Here's my mind flying in a hundred different directions. So, so my training is as a trauma therapist and a bereavement, a sudden death is one iteration of a trauma, but in trauma work, we look at the whole body and the whole system. And we think about how trauma is trapped in the body. And there's a million books about it. Brilliant brain science And my listeners know that if I was going to come back as anything, it would be as a neuroscientist because I'm so fascinated by the brain. A lot of the work that I do with people who, particularly when they're in early, really heavy symptomatic trauma, and the symptomatic trauma could be a year after the actual event, but there's the event that happens and then there's the system overload that can happen. And there is some data that says that a sudden traumatic event triggers those symptoms differently. My dad died of cancer slowly over the course of a year. I was, I was able to participate in that. So that wasn't as shocking to my system as when my mom died overnight unexpectedly. What in that world, when we're talking about therapy, we have a series of therapies and there may be crossover here. So I'm really saying this for the listeners, but in IFS therapy, which is something that Dick Schwartz invented for us. There's this concept of unburdening, this limiting belief that you have, which Dick doesn't formulate it this way, but it really is about sort of unburdening the, the self-energy, the soul from this heaviness. And he has this technique that he takes you through, but, but one of the ways to unburden, let's say the, the limiting belief is I can't live without my mother or I'll die, I get divorced, whatever the limiting belief is that, that in order to unburden it, we, there's a, there's multiple steps, but one of the steps sometimes is, can you bring anything in from your imagination? Hmm. Right. And so when I've done this task with people, I had a client who brought in like, you know, a character from a book. I had someone who brought in like a leprechaun. There's the notion being that you can call on all of your creativity and non-factual things in order to help something move along. Mm-hmm. In sensory motor psychotherapy, which is Pat Ogden's and Peter is, is, his his stuff is sensory motor experiencing, but same idea that trauma is trapped in the body. And primarily what they're working on is the freeze response of trauma. So you were in a car accident, you were mugged, you were something, and you were not able to help yourself. Same story. They bring you with your memory, your conscious memory, back into the sensation of all that fear in your body. And then they provide a resolution. As a therapist, we say, what does your body want to do? It stayed frozen when you were being mugged. Check in with your body. What does it want to do? And then we move through this resolution, so that you don't have to continue to stay stuck in this freeze, you can actually experience the body, have the, I fought back, or I screamed or I yelled or I called the police or I killed the guy. And we actually in our offices move through that. And so it, what is striking me is you are offering in your research a whole other piece of this, which is your subconscious. We're so wired to heal that we can do these therapeutic interventions consciously with our imagination and our memory, but that the, the limbic state and that the right brain, the intuitive brain may even in our sleep offer us this resolution like you had, which it wouldn't have consciously occurred to you to say, I love you out loud to your dad, but, but it it formulates this gorgeous unburdening. And it's just, it really is mind blowing to me because I talk to my clients about lots of stuff. Sometimes they bring up dreams. I don't regularly ask them about their dreams, but I swear I'm going to now because (laughs) well, because part of what you've taught me is that this A is common the same way that I know that people, you know, I know to ask people, have you been exercising more in early grief? Because the body wants to move. It wants to, you know, generate some of that energy out not for everyone, but for lots of people. Or I'll say, have you noticed that you're doing anything creative? Is there anything, you know, like musical or art related that you've just been thinking about? And people are like, wow, it's so crazy you asked that. It's not crazy that I asked that. We have data that that's, (laughs) you know, that's a grief process. And what's so interesting for me about your story is that yours is one that also often comes up, which is that people had a version of their life that they were relatively content with. They have this, really traumatic event and their traumatic growth, meaning like they grow into something. It isn't just a bad thing happened in my life. And it changes the trajectory of their life in a way that feels more like a calling that the, that the terrible thing that happened, my dad died suddenly cracked open this thing that I never would have found otherwise. And it, you know, you have nine hours of educational study on it and it looks like you could talk about it for days. So I would not, and I never will for one second say, oh, it's a good thing that this terrible thing happened, but it does show us that trauma doesn't have to stay where it is, that there are, there's trauma and then there's living into our lives, which is yeah, you know, fascinating
1: well, it is, and there's a lot of points you said there. I don't know which way I'm going to go yet, but <laughs> I
0: know I'm talking for a minute. I can talk for hours.
1: But yeah, when I look at like the function of these dreams and how they can unburden people, I think it's fascinating because it can lead to that growth that you talk about in many ways. And a lot of people will look at that and say, "Oh, the person's just resilient," but no, they had a dream that actually helped them, and you just haven't asked. And I think it's so important to ask because. People are afraid to share for many, many reasons. And our cultures really have downplayed the importance of dreams. And, and because no one asks also, like people don't think that they should bring it up. And some people may bring up those negative dreams, especially with trauma and PTSD and everything like that. They're having a lot of these repeated nightmares, either seeing the death as it happened or in an exaggerated form, or even having dreams of feeling hopeless and they can't save or, or get to the individual. I've seen that a lot in the dream injury but they may mention that because it's very disturbing, but they may not mention the very loving and positive aspects of these other dreams that are actually very comforting and that they actually hang on to, to not just deal with and work through their grief, but also other aspects that challenge them in waking life. Even like the pandemic, people turn back to some of these dreams because of the feeling of love. They can still remember. It's still part of their memory, even 20 years later. And they can go back there and to get to that peace, on whatever that was, but they can still feel it. And that helps them as they sort of persevere other challenges as they move forward. I I look back at even like when these probably started, right? I'm guessing that they've been around since humans been around. And so how they actually helped us through to survive. I can only imagine, like, we didn't have like the trauma stuff that we know now and all the other things, these dreams really would have helped a lot of people to survive and work through some of the trauma because I can't imagine you know, what it would have been like, you know, a thousand years ago, you know, the death, the lack of medical care, like all that sort of stuff, the, the, the different challenges that people would have seen and been a part of, they had to sort of work through that. And these dreams would have definitely helped them with that. And, and also probably helped them maintain their faith in a lot of different ways also. And, you know, faith really can, or spirituality can really bring people together in many ways and can even inform spiritual beliefs. I think that's very interesting, too, and, and the aspect of when we look at just loss or the, the death of someone, you look at all the different factors that come into play. And if someone is spiritual, even religious, one of the things that they comes into play is that there's this shattered belief about you know God and that the world is just and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And these dreams I've seen for those people can really help people mend those fences and to, to rejoin the group that they were once a part of because it can be very isolating once you leave something that all your friends were a part of. Oh yeah. And so I, you can sort of see how it can actually help communities thrive. Looking back, I'm like, wow, the importance of dreams throughout our culture is just these types of dreams. I don't think it's really been investigated to the full extent because you look at indigenous communities. Yeah. They really value these dreams and they have really interesting beliefs on them that's a little different than other types of beliefs, but everyone's a very unique, but they, very, they feel that these dreams are very important even more so than other dreams that they have.
0: I love the idea that you just said, you know, other cultures and spirituality, because I think one of the things that's hard about dreams is that you don't know where people land in terms of what they believe about them. Right. And so the fact that you're collating data with sort of a scientific method lends the people who are uncomfortable with the idea about talking about maybe more the like woo-woo element of it. But there are cultures where dreams are absolutely visits from your ancestors and you wake up and you're grateful for them and that you're getting a message. And then there are other folks who, That is not, it's not a visit from their ancestor. It's probably something defective about their mind and that they probably means they need to eat less salt or, but there's, I think it, we run the complete gamut. And so being able to, you know, I'm thinking about it from sort of a treatment perspective, being able to engage someone at any level of saying, you know, what is your culture? One of the questions I ask in grief all the time is, you know, do you have any sort of spiritual support around this? Do you have any organizing structure about God or an afterlife or any of those things? Because I don't want to presume anyone does. And I sort of also don't care if they do. I just want to know, like, what are your resources and what are your tools? And so again, the notion that people may have a subconscious, it's actually really, really hopeful. You know, grief and grieving is so hard. I'm always telling people like I know it feels like the earth should not be spinning on its axis and I'm not going to tell you that it's going to get better what I will tell you is that almost everyone I have ever spoken to feels that way and still succeeds at living life. We have we have really good data that says that most people are able to continue to live. That's sometimes the best hope that I can give people. But the notion I, b- I have is that we're always looking to heal, that the body and the mind is always looking to heal. It's not always highly skilled at it, but it's trying, and, but to be able to say, and also just like your body's detoxifying while you're sleeping, it may also be doing some psychic resolution. Is it okay if I, t- if I tell you a couple of the dreams that I've had in terms of loss, <laughs> you're like, yes, Megan, I've heard them all. So I spent a lot of time with my dad. He had small cell cancer. And he died in 2017. And some of his relationships were not in the exact spot that he would have liked to have been able to have them in. But I had a dream. And the reason I asked you about the three months is that the dream was pretty much instantaneous. When I left his house, came back to my house every night for about three months, I dreamt that I would would find him somewhere. He would have a pill and I would have a pill and he would say, it's time. And we would both swallow the pill. And we would both know that we were dying, that we were both gonna die. Sometimes in the dream, I would say to him, do I really have to die too? <laughs> and, and, and the answer always was yes. And then somewhere around three months, I had a dream of being at a cousin's wedding that my dad was at. I was waiting with my husband outside the church for my dad. He walked up and I knew he was dead. He was like in a tuxedo, like he was going to a wedding and I gave him a big hug. I didn't say anything, but I just gave him a big hug. And then he walked away and didn't go into the wedding. And I turned to my husband and said, I'm never going to see him again. And that was the whole dream. And I've never dreamt of my father again. That was just one time, never again with my mom. About three months, I didn't dream about her at all. And about three months, I had a dream. It's actually in my memoir where I was washing this. She has this, I actually have it in my house now, an artisan glass, hand glass bowl that's very slippery and it's expensive. So in the dream, I'm washing this crystal bowl and it's very slippery and I'm really afraid I'm going to break it. And I'm looking out into her garden at these big white lilies that are like the white. I mean, she does have those white lilies in her garden, but also they're the kind of lilies that you would have at a funeral. And I'm noticing that there's hundreds more than there would be normally. And suddenly, and I'm washing this bowl and I'm trying to be careful. And suddenly she's at my elbow and I turn and I look at her and she's very small. And I look at her and she's got sort of this mischievous look on her face <laughs> Like, like she kind of knows she's not supposed to be there. And then we both at the exact same moment realize she died. Mm. Oh, it's going to make me cry. And then I hug her and she hugs me. And she says something to me that I can't hear. Because sometimes when you hug people, your ear is like pressed up against them. So she says something that I can't hear, but it's not distressing that I can't hear it. And then I drop the bowl. Mm. and it breaks into a million zillion tiny pieces and then I know I don't say it I just and she's gone and I'm like I'm I'm never gonna see her again Mm. the one with my dad didn't create pain the one with my mom kills
1: Mm. well it speaks to you in in many different levels and it brings up you know a lot and I think that's why it's important to ask about these dreams, just you sharing a dream. And it's, it's like what it brings up. And there's so many questions I could ask if we had the time, if you wanted right. to share. <laughs> like, but there's, yeah. there's so much in that and there's so much in that imagery. And I'm I'm not sure if you've actually looked at that and what the bull represents as a part of you and, and that whole thing, because that was the main point of the dream. Yeah, you know, like and, and it's like, what does that mean and what, you know, for you and. Yeah. It's yeah. So there's so much rich detail that, you know, a, a therapist could really pull apart and to understand what the person is truly dealing with within their mind. And it's very difficult as a therapist to get the truth out, you know, like a lot of people don't know who they are. And so <laughs> it can be very difficult, but dreams, we're not really influencing them consciously. So what's right. going on is a beautiful window into what is trying to be processed or what needs to be processed first. And I think, you know, there's so many ways that, you know, with the right training, you can really look at this stuff and I guess help people a little easier in one's practice, but also just allowing them to share. You just sharing in itself, it's its own therapeutic you know, remedy, right? Like there's a lot to that. And, and like I, I got a little teary-eyed just mm-hmm. hearing it and, 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 and listening to it. And what that, you know, what that does, I don't know how much I want to go into it, but you know, there's, there's just a lot there. And I'm just glad you're bringing it up for people to sort of see uh, as we move forward. And one of the difficulties, I think it's a good time to to, to maybe shift a little to, you know, why people don't have these dreams. You know? Yeah, like, so I, yeah.
0: I, I'm super curious about that. One thing I want to say before we pivot is that when I run a grief writing workshop in my, off my website. And I do ask one of the questions is about dreams. And I'm really, I really encourage people to write about it because there's neuroscience about the healing of sort of owning the story and processing the story. And I think when, you know, all of those dreams that I just quickly described, I have written about them. And so they're kind of locked in in mine. And so even when you're saying You know, you can explore it therapeutically. I think there's something about dreams where it's like people don't want to pull them apart too heavy because they want to keep them maybe intact, like it's a gift or it's a a scary thing. And one of the things that writing allows you when you write down all the details is it'll still be there for you. You're not going to do anything to it. It's totally intact. And so you don't have to struggle with it. You can just be curious about it. So that's, yeah. there's all, there's all these little partnerships around those things. There anyway. are,
1: you know, and, and when, you, like when people share dreams, there's like so many things and windows that open up my mind on like different directions. Can you can take it. a dream. Right. And so, you know, but yeah, sharing a dream, is its own benefit and just sitting in the beauty of it, like you would sit in the beauty of a painting or some kind of artwork and just marvel in the beauty of that is, yeah, it's definitely a thing. And there's layers to dreams, which I love. And there's different ways you can look at it based on where you are in your grieving process which is kind of cool how the story will change on even some of the the small interactions or what was said or even some of the imagery details that you may not question the beginning but later on you look back like oh that was very unique that that was placed there and it could have been anything right like even the location you could be anywhere in the world or anywhere in i guess your creative imagination but you're there like what's important about that and like why so many flowers or tulip, right? Like,
0: right, right. you
1: know, like it right. could be anything. It could have been sunflowers. It could have been, you know, puppies, yeah. you know, thousands of puppies everywhere. Like, it's just like, yeah. but it's unique to you. And I think that's the beauty of it is that it tells a tale of who you are as an individual and what your experiences have been, you know, with that person, but also within waking life. So yeah, I think there's just, there's so much to learn, right? If you yeah. piece it apart, what happens, you'll learn more about the individual and who they are as a whole, more as a whole that you may not get if you just hear their story. Yeah, And that's why I like, you know, even on the podcast, we ask people not only to, you know, tell a dream or whatever, if they had one, I learned a lot about things that we just spent an hour talking. And because of that dream, I learned so much more about them than I did in the first, you know, 40 minutes, but also just creating a dream that that you may want to have has a lot of rich detail in who we are, which I think is a very beautiful exercise that people can do. And that's on sort of my website that people can go to. It's very moving to see when someone fills it out, what kind of emotions come out. Yeah. And there's so much you can talk about within that because they're putting in the imagery, they're putting in what the person's wearing, what they're wearing, you know, what is said, like the sense. So there's so many things that you can just further dialogue with and it could be like just another tool to explore loss in a very unique way. And I think we can get in a rut by talking about it very similarly but sometimes you just need something new like artwork or journaling. These are very new, you know, different, different things that you can utilize. And it's just like another one of those things, not only asking about the dream, but what dream would you want to have if you could? And the reason why I created that exercise is because a lot of people who ran support groups for the bereaved didn't want to bring up, didn't want to bring up these dreams because not everyone had them. And they,
0: yeah. Tell us about that.
1: Tell us about that. Yeah. So they realized that, well, they say i think there's a couple of reasons why they didn't bring it up in group but <laughs> one right. one is lack of education and being feeling uncomfortable not being able to answer questions yeah. but the other thing is that not everyone's going to have a, a dream in the group and so people may get jealous of others and so they didn't want that so they just avoided that conversation altogether and so i'm like well there's got to be a way we can bring it in because it's such an important part of the journey And people can learn a lot from other people's dreams, too, about just grief in general. And the words of wisdom that comes from the deceased to the dreamer is very beautiful. That can help in many different circumstances. So I'm like, there's got to be a creative way to do this. And so I go, not everyone will have a dream, but everyone could create a dream that they want to have and share that with each other. And that can be sort of part of the group as you educate them on dreams and then answer questions that they do have. And so people have been utilizing that technique and it's been very useful for people to be able to explore that the reason why I went to do the research because there are people that were complicating their grief because it didn't have a dream. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I, 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 need to do my PhD. I would have stopped at my master's to tell you the truth if I could have, just <laughs> but I, I didn't have the time. So I needed to do a yeah, PhD. And so, yeah. And so I looked at, you know, why are some people having these dreams and other people don't. And that, so we talked about a little bit, or I think you mentioned it, and so it got replicated in research that your dream recall in general is the most important factor to remembering these types of dreams. And I think that's a very important part. And what it's saying is people who are just dream more often are having these dreams. So it's a function of remembering dreams. What it's t- also telling me is people are probably having these dreams, but may not remember them when they wake up. And that is very interesting because you know the function of memory and when do we remember these and do we need to remember them for them to be... Healing for us, I don't know. I, I can't determine that question because we can't see the dreams and know if people had them. But maybe you don't need to remember a dream for it to have healing potential. Right. Which I, th- which I think is a crazy <laughs> theory, but it's very interesting to think about. When I ask the bereaved now, when they come to me with these questions, um, they say like, "Why haven't I had a dream?" I always ask them about the dream recall, and you know, more times than not, they'll say that. They just don't remember dreaming that often. Then I just say, like, how are you supposed to remember these types of dreams then? And it just connects the dots for them. And you can see this weight come off them. So all those reasons that they had and why the deceased wasn't in the, why they didn't dream, now it's gone. There's a scientific explanation that they probably just dreamed it, but just didn't remember it. There are ways to increase your dream recall by valuing dreams, by writing them down in a journal. And what you're doing is you're training your mind to say that they're important now mind's really good. If you're saying this is important, it'll go towards it. But our culture has always said it was not important. So why remember something that's not important? And so now you can, by using the, the dream journal, I think it could really help people increase that frequency, which may also help increase sort of the points of remembering those dreams as you move forward. So when people ask you know, why I haven't had a dream, they are given that reason. I always then follow up with what dream would you want to have then? Yeah. If you could... And a lot of people would say, I, I never really thought about that. I'm like, yeah. what do you mean you haven't thought about that? You've been wanting this for the last you know couple months, but yet you haven't thought about what dream you wanted to have. I said, let's create one. And then so that actually helps with another thing called dream incubation that has been shown in research it may help. I don't know with these dreams, if it would help, but in like other dreams, it has yeah. helped. Yeah. And so what you do is you create that dream so you can use that exercise sheet. And then when you go to bed, you want to think about that dream and just like meditate on that, that dream and what it would feel like as you go to bed. And it's supposed to, and that was supposed to increase you to have a dream. It, the people that have done that have told me that if they, when they did get one, uh, it wasn't the exact same dream that they created, which is, I think, interesting in itself. So it's yeah. not just a, a replication. There's something else that is going on, which I, I think is really interesting in itself, but it's really just telling them if I have this dream, you know, please wake me up. I want to remember it. <laughs>
0: there's so much about what you're describing which feels again really hopeful and borrows from other knowledge that I, that comes from things that i've studied in the trauma field so there's this big sort of arc of like everybody's talking about the same thing maybe with different focus but what it sounds like you're describing again the dreams are from your unconscious state so they're from the the very core of the right brain that just sort of intuitively does things As opposed to the left brain, which thinks about things. And so you're describing, listen, if it's not happening in your brain on its own, doesn't mean we can't have it practice and encourage it to happen. And maybe even just proactively allowing ourselves to be with our imagination rather than our subconscious think about what we would like those dreams to be, we might be able to lean towards some of that resolution, which I would say there's just, I won't go into it, but there's a ton of research in various trauma modalities that would back that up. The Mm -hmm. idea that you don't have to have had this happen. You don't have to have fought off your attacker in order to feel a physical resolution in your body. That feels different than the fear that you constantly felt in those moments. So when you go back to the memory of being mugged, your body has this five senses experience of all the tension and fear of that. You don't have to go back, find that guy who mugged you and reenact it. You right. There are ways with your imagination and your physical state to unload some of that energy. And I think that's what you're describing with this really creative sheet. In the early stages of grief, because your amygdala and your limbic system is so jacked up, there's not a lot of creativity that your brain offers you online. You're just in a really reactive state in general. Later on, when some of that limbic response is calmer, which when I say later on, that could be a year from now, that could be two years from now, you know, my mom died almost two years ago, and I still don't sleep that well. So there, you know, your body can have systems that are still activated, but later on being able to go with creativity and say, I want to be able to think about what kind of a dream would I want to have? I can understand that in a group, maybe people would be frustrated or, or jealous, but I would say that that's true about a lot of grief that oh, there's, you know you get a bunch of grievers yeah. in your room somebody's jealous that you believe that that cardinal that was outside your window was your mother and you can't believe that or somebody is jealous that you were there with your son when he died and they weren't I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's unresolved and so when we hear that other people have had different experiences than we have we can have energy about it what you are offering is listen Just because you didn't have it doesn't mean we can't move towards it. Mm -hmm. Let's have some conscious thought around what would you have wanted to happen? And that creativity and and that imagination does provide a lot of that sort of sense of hope and moving forward and living instead of feeling sort of stuck. And from that sort of dual process model of like grieving and living and grieving and living. Is that, work, is that worksheet on your website? Is that what I heard you say if people are interested in that?
1: It is, yeah. Please go to griefdreams.ca. It's right there and they can download it. It's free. Yeah. And it's something I, I recommend doing and also to yourself, but also get your loved ones to, like, yeah. to also do it to see what kind of dreams they want. It's a very interesting conversation how it differs from you because everyone has their own ways of interacting with their loved one that's different from us. And we, that's why we're all unique in our grief and we're all going to be unique in the dreams that we concoct and what we want to sort of have. And I want to go back to sort of your point on how you said in the trauma field on how you work with, you know, your creative mind and how that can help you. That's actually how you work with negative dreams and like for people who do have negative dreams, there are ways to sort of work with those. And one of the ways is called dream rescripting. So after you have whatever that nightmare is, when you wake up, what you do is you rescript that dream so it's more positive and comforting for you. And that could be changing the ending. It could be, you know, changing or bringing in a character to help you through whatever circumstances that came up upon you in the dream. And it worked with, you know, children and adults, and the, the research has shown it works pretty well, and reducing the distress, but also reducing the nightmares from even occurring, which I think is really interesting. And it's something that people can utilize as they move forward, you know, through that. And what's interesting, even with trauma, is that sometimes the trauma affects our dreams. But what's interesting is if we work on our dreams, we can actually impact our trauma. Yeah, and I think that is fascinating. So it's like it's a two-way street. If you can't work with one, work with the other, and they may help working with the with the the one. And I think that's sort of fascinating in itself. How like they're partners in in crime. It's the best way
0: to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I have some clients, and actually had I I had some PTSD after my mom died, but I have some clients who. Really, their dreams are probably the thing that are driving a lot of the other symptoms, like the the sleep being at the core, just being tormented yeah. with PTSD imagery, as you mentioned, yeah. so the picture of someone's dead body, or and and in the world of trauma, sometimes there are psychiatrists, and you may know this, that prescribe it's actually blood pressure medicine, but it's off brand use is that it interrupts those repetitive flashing dreams in your subconscious. And so people mm-hmm. will take this medicine and very quickly have relief from some of the PTSD dreaming, the ones that are more like flashes and pictures and be able to sleep mm-hmm. and just not have that sort of relentless nightmare component to it. And, and I'm only, I'm only distinguishing it because I really want to be clear that PTSD imagery is usually one big long ticker tape or a series of flashes that people have all the time, as opposed to a nightmare, which has maybe like a, you know, you're being chased or you're being, but then a nightmare, I think of, I think we think of as having a menacing force, but not necessarily being a, a series of repeated images when it's repeated images It gets to be treated differently than little kids who, I don't know, when they were going through growth spurts, had terrible dreams, maybe hormonally driven. But it is interesting to note that from the trauma world, we are aware that being able to offer people restorative sleep is important. So important. Can you imagine if part of what we were doing in there was offering them the potential of satisfying and healing dreaming, or the belief that they could do satisfying and healing dreaming? I mean, that, that from a neuroscience perspective, is really just a super cool and it's, helpful it's idea. Very, well, it's, it's it's so
1: interesting. And yeah, and when and we talk about the importance of sleep, Like a lot of people who have nightmares or dreaming of the disease dying again or being chased, stuff like that, they're afraid to go to bed for many. Absolutely. And so they will restrict their sleep. And then what happens is that actually, you know, that avoidance is actually one of the reasons why the dreams keep coming. And it's like you really have to tackle that people need their sleep to heal. And so if these dreams can help people sleep better, like that's the most important thing. And so we have to raise awareness that not only the dream itself, but also our interpretation. So some people can have really positive dreams, but the interpretation of the dream is very distressful for them. And so that is a thing that is causing them to want to basically avoid sleeping or avoid just the imagery. Because every culture has its own different understanding. Even positive dreams can be very distressing for some cultures and some individuals. I haven't really seen a a clear cut answer from any kind of religion on what these dreams are. And so everyone has different beliefs within a religion on if they're positive experiences, are they negative? Just for Christianity in general, I've had a couple pastors basically say positive dreams are from the devil. So a dream where the deceased is telling you that they love you and that they're okay, they've crossed over kind of thing. they would say that's yeah, a devil in disguise, which kind of blows my mind in yeah. many ways. But I hear that comment a lot from the bereaved, which was really sad to, for me to hear because what uh-huh. was supposed to be very beautiful for the individual and in healing has now turned into a very frightening imagery for the person. And there is actually, hard no enough. we
0: don't need that. We don't need that. That's
1: yeah. we can do no, it. And, and then there's other pastors say, you know, like God allows that. So it's just seeing people's viewpoints on it but it, it impacts and they don't understand the impact of that they're just saying stuff without actually yeah. scientific research and when you actually look at the research these dreams not only help people through the grieving process so if it was the devil it's a really poor way of him running the show because right. he's get, trying to get people back to the religion that they were just right. you
0: know
1: <laughs> running from or trying to get them to happy and joyful again and be supportive in their community it's just like all this stuff it just didn't make any sense and the research showcases the how beautiful these dreams are, and how they restore faith in many ways. And just people talk without realizing how their words impact the bereavement and the individual trying to understand an experience that no one's really ever talked about. Yeah. And so it's really about how do you provide a safe space for people to not only share, but to also give them advice if their interpretation of the dream is yeah. distressing. And so it's really about teaching discernment when it comes to these, because there are a lot of people who have these dreams, even negative dreams, and they'll say it's a visitation. If you're spiritual, they may even say a negative dream is a visitation of, of them. So if they're chasing them or, or whatnot, that, that's them. That's the soul and how distressing that is for them, where you know the research I'm doing showcases more has something to do with your waking life issues that and blocks that you're
0: working on in your grief.
1: So there's a lot that we can talk about, you know, when it comes to this, but there's just so many challenges for the bereaved on this one topic.
0: Yeah. I mean, what, what, what's interesting. And again, it just, it harkens back to, I think, therapeutic intervention in general, which is that idea of sort of being a hope merchant and saying, okay, maybe your religion translates this this way. Maybe your cultural history translates this, but also, here are some other interpretations. Here are some other possibilities. Always sort of offering, even if even if it's a bad dream, even if it's the notion that like this is your body and mind trying to move towards healing. Yeah. That yeah. there, that actually we are wired to do that. There's a lot of a ton of data that you know demonstrates that that is what we head to over time. It's just the getting from here to there. Where it can be really painful, and in terms of the narrative, you know, you know, I know that being able to tell a grief story and have it not totally dysregulate you or pull you under the water in terms of all the feelings that you have is really important, and being able to know that when you go to sleep that that's not going to happen, and to be able to say that these are some beliefs that I have, but. I don't have to hold on to them if they're going to cause me suffering, is sort of the offer that you're describing, Mm -hmm. which sounds incredibly helpful and hopeful. And we were off mic a minute ago, you said you're about to take a big road trip and you're about to move and you're what, where does your work take you next? Is this 50 year longitudinal study? Are you, <laughs> are you collecting more data? Are you, and I, I don't think we told the group, although we've alluded to it, that you have a podcast and that you, that's where you tell a lot of stories and go, I think, deeper into the um, sort of qualitative element of this. But if people are interested in this work and we'll put your stuff in the show notes, what what should we expect from you in your move out to the sea and in your next interests and explorations?
1: Well, that's the beauty of life where you don't know, but you know it just needs to be taken. So the steps moving forward is just disseminate the research. So all the research I have done up to this point has been or has been accepted to be published uh, within journals. I will say it takes so long for a study after being done to then be published in an academic journal. So anyways, that's all done. And so the next step was after that. So I needed that. So then I could actually talk about it to people and they can check the research. And like, I really needed that. And so that's when I then developed the online course from there that now I'm just really trying to raise awareness as much as I can, anywhere I can to really help people understand the importance of the topics so they can actually start asking the questions and start helping people that are either traumatized by their dreams or having very beautiful dreams and they have no one to express it to and i think it's not only having a dream but it being able to express it's such an important part and like why is it that we only talk about negative things like why can't we talk about the beauty that is and the things that are helping us within our lives and so that is a, a really big of where I am right now and we'll see where that takes me. I am collecting dreams of in the pandemic and we didn't really touch on that, but that's so interesting in itself and how these dreams change over time. And so we talked about how dreams helpful in grief and they're very helpful even in the pandemic, very loving dreams. They seem to be still overwhelmingly positive and how beautiful that is because in the pandemic, the ways we could grieve and cope have changed our rituals have changed, but yet these dreams are still a huge, important factor on our healing. And I think that is phenomenal in many ways that we're just not talking about. Like even in like the news, you know, pandemic has increased nightmares. I'm like, yeah, that's great. But they're also increasing some other stuff too. That's very positive. And so a lot of people who have had loss prior to the, to the pandemic, maybe it's like five, 10 years ago. There's this resurgent of these dreams, and this is how dreams change over time. So in the beginning, they really focus on our grief, but then after a while, they'll focus on other challenges that we face, that it won't be our grief per se, it'd be other things. And so the pandemic would be one of those. So people who were feeling lonely were spending more time with the deceased and having a lot of dreams with them just hanging out with the deceased. Other times the deceased were checking in on them, how they were doing, even giving them advice on how to proceed within the pandemic, which I think was really fascinating. And so you start seeing this and how these dreams actually help individuals in other areas. And then at end of life, the dreams shift again to allowing people to release their body a little bit more easily, to let go of the world, I guess, another way. So they help with the transition from life to death.
0: Mm -hmm. I think
1: that's so beautiful. When you look at dreams just in the grief process, it's one thing. But when you start looking at it from a a, a further perspective, you realize that these dreams are very unique because they do change. They don't really go away. They just change in sort of how they're trying to help us really work through this crazy life that we live.
0: I I could talk to you about this all day. I I hope you'll get back in touch with me so we can talk more dreams. This has just been a totally fascinating conversation. And I imagine you're going to have some things to tell us even more formally about what you learned about dreams during the pandemic. This has been fascinating. I'm going to think more about the being conscious about asking people about dreams and using that yeah as a tool, because now you've sort of said to me, well, scientifically, Megan, there's some data behind how <laughs> yeah, see, <laughs> see what numbers do know, as much as, and I am, I am absolutely qualitative, yin and yang, Eastern, Western yeah. about everything, but I do like the science. So I like having the, <laughs> Hey, well, there's an expert in this. And I talked to him and he said, I really love that. And also I'll just tell you that I've been doing, I, I don't know how many podcasts I've done now, some somewhere upwards of 30, and I haven't cried on any of them. This was my, I've gotten teary, but this was my my first one for myself. So there's something really powerful just about the, the grief process and the content that I also am going to sit and simmer with, because I think there's something in that for me to think about.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of talking about these dreams because most people have never asked. So it's like rich territory to explore. There's something to explore there because, yeah. you know, first of all, you haven't cried on the podcast, but just in general, like. What was it about this topic and talking about it that was so meaningful that you've talked about grief in other areas of your life i've heard some of your podcasts but like what is it about this dream and what is it what's it doing what are you thinking about uh, behind the surface when you're sharing it i think it's very interesting to just sort of like sit with that i want to also say we didn't get to it i want to sort of also mention that there is this theme that can be positive or negative that actually seems to reflect someone's mental health and for therapists to ask dreams You may be able to really ask about and catch some of these dreams. And they're really a flag for depression or even suicidal ideation. Yeah. That's, and- a, that's a
0: great point to bring up. And I, I had it go through my head, like, you know, with PTSD or complex trauma, it's not uncommon to have someone's mind have shut down so tightly that they're going to tell you they don't have great memories and they don't dream at all. And that is one of those diagnostics where if somebody says, like, eh, I don't really remember my childhood at all, I can't tell you if I had a dog. You know, that is an indicator of a certain element of trauma. Same with dreams. When people say, I never dream, I never remember my dreams, I don't think I have them. What we know is that there's, you know, there's something keeping all of that really tight. And it is a diagnostic around mental health. The importance of one theme in general is called come join me.
1: And so the deceased is either dragging the individual to the afterlife in some way, or trying to convince the person to kill themselves. This is why I say it's very interesting why we need to sort of use discernment because people who are spiritual, even if not, I think having a dream of of a loving dream of saying, this is the only way our love is to, we're going to be together. You're going to have to kill yourself. Well, I can see in a state of grief, some will kill themselves because they're believing that dream is true in one way or another. And so when you look at this, and just in my research, it seems to be very rare. I've I've collected over thousands of dreams. I've only caught three of them. And those three have been highly related to very high scores of trauma symptoms. So that's one thing. There was a psychotherapist who wrote a book on these grief dreams, but didn't really use science, just sort of like explored it in her own practice. And she mentioned that people who had those types of dreams had high suicide ideation, which was interesting. And then you also see them across cultures. So they're in the Torja people in Indonesia. If someone has a dream like that, their myth is that that person is going to die soon. So Mm. it could be because they're very traumatized and when you're a hunter-gatherer, you'll make a mistake and you can easily die sooner than later. Or it could be that they do kill themselves. So I think one of the things we need to ask about these dreams is we may actually save lives because some of the dreams may actually hinder people's lives. Mm. And that's why we need discernment. We need to talk about them in a therapeutic setting to know, you know, is this something that we need to be aware of? Because that'd be a huge red flag if someone ever dreams of that.
0: It's been in the back of my mind when, before my mom died, the week before my mom died, my listeners have heard me talk about this. You may have heard me talk about this, but my youngest son who's nine, but he was, you know, younger than um, seven. Then he was with his dad in the UK and he was every single night dreaming that someone he loved would die, woke up in the middle of the night for 10 days. And then, you know, we went to go see my mom. My mom did die and he's a little kid. He didn't mean anything by this, but he was like, oh, I feel better. I'm not going to have a bad dream. I think it was just that Nana was going to die. And those are the kinds of things that, you know, I don't know where I fall out on that. Right. Like, so when you were talking about, even about the suicidality, I think we could find some, probably from Eastern traditions, people who would say, well, Were they driving suicidality or were they already? Was it a precognition of something that was going to happen again with my son's stuff? Like, I don't know where I shake out about that, it makes me really uncomfortable and I don't like (laughs) it. And I believe it's true, I mean, it it happened, yeah. So it's nice
1: and it's nice how your son interpreted the dream in such a way that it wasn't disturbing to him anymore. And precognitive dreams are a thing at the real, like you know, you see them across cultures, how we understand them, it's really about you know. Can we understand them in a way that's not distressing? And it seemed for your child, it was, and you didn't have, didn't seem like you have issues otherwise. But it did bring up a point that we didn't talk about: that children do have, you know, grief dreams. And even one study was done up by someone else. Fit, someone else, fifty-five percent of children who lost a parent had a dream of the deceased. So everyone's having these in many different ways. But how we understand them can be very um, distressing in, in many different ways, or comforting based on you know who is around us and how we interpret it.
0: I hope your research and your curiosity about this and, you know, just everything that you've offered the field just spikes. I I hope little other interests and other scientists and other qualitative researchers just take this and run with it. Because I think, again, my biggest takeaway from this is that it's just incredibly hopeful. It's another tool that we could be using and it's another way of opening the conversation. And I'm really appreciative of it because it isn't one that I really had been thinking about. So I'm just, grateful that you brought it to my mm-hmm. attention. I'm grateful for all your knowledge about it. And I really hope we get to cross paths and talk more about it. I feel like you and I both could talk about it for hours and hours. So I'm going to keep following your work and I just wish you the best of luck with it. It's great.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate your support. And also so like I can, I can see your excitement and your intrigue in it all and how it works with your own personality and neuroscience yeah. and all that sort of yeah. stuff. It's just clicking stuff. And there's probably a lot you can learn about even grief through looking at people's dreams they probably never thought about how if the mind's doing this how can we utilize those techniques more in waking life because it seems that it's part of our survival. If our mind's doing it, there's something key there that maybe we're not doing yet in waking life. So yeah, I can see you maybe even be helping with some research as we move forward. Keep
0: in touch. You're not going to have to convince me. I I am really, I'm eager. I get lots of emails and I imagine we're going to get some emails of curiosity for some, from some other folks. So thank you for your time. Thank you for reaching out and let's stay in touch. Okay. Thank you again for having me on. Of course. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, thank you so much for sticking with us for season one of Grief is My Side Hustle the podcast. This interview with Dr. Joshua Black is our last one for our first season. I actually have a bonus episode, which is an interview with my children, my three children talking about my dad's death and my mom's death that will be coming out next week. It's a really intimate one. It's really sweet and it'll wrap us up completely, but it's not a full hour. So remember, I love reviews over on Apple podcast. It's, it is actually working. It's helping. We're getting lots of listens. Lots of folks are getting access to all the good material on the podcast. Thanks so much. And if you write a comment, that is also really helpful and I'll take a couple of weeks off, but pay attention to my Instagram and you'll know when I'm coming back. Thanks so much. Mm